0: i invite you to pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The question I want want to open with this morning is, where where do you stand, or for most of us since we're sitting, where do you sit in today's text? Today's parable is a doozy. Most of us are not fond of these kinds of parables of judgment, the ones that end with the risk of eternal fire. I imagine that many of us hear these texts with a fair bit of anxiety and flashbacks to church experiences when someone, often the preacher, made clear that if you made the wrong choice, did the wrong thing, believed the wrong way, then you were damned to hell. And so I want to say at the outset that these kinds of texts feel... Risky and like uncomfortable ones, even for me to preach, because it's hard to separate myself from the baggage that many of us carry around some of these fire and brimstone passages. And because we carry that baggage, it can often be difficult to hear with fresh ears what kind of grace God might be offering us. Is there grace to be found here? The question is where do you stand in today's text? When Jesus was telling about parables and teaching in parables, his listeners might have asked that very same question. Is this a message for me? With whom do I identify in this story? What meaning am I supposed to make out of it? And why is Jesus telling it anyway? Jesus was known for teaching in this way. The word parable uh, literally means tossed together or tossed about like the sower who went to sow some seeds and just tossed them on the ground. And when Jesus taught in this way, it drove the disciples crazy. After Jesus told the parable of the sower, the disciples literally asked Jesus, why do you speak to us in this way? But the reality is that parables are a storytelling device. They're a way of inviting us deeper into a level of reflection about our life with God. And the struggle with parables is that we want to know what they mean. Or worse yet, we think we understand what they mean. If you read a parable like this one on the surface, you can see how quickly we can get to that kind of fire and brimstone that we're all so desperate to avoid. Because if you read this story literally, it sounds like a checklist that's being used to determine your fate for eternity. Did you feed the hungry? Check. Uh, for drink to the thirsty? Check. Clothe the naked? Strike one. Did you welcome the stranger? Check. Visit the sick and imprisoned? Strike two. Well, okay, three out of five isn't too bad. You can be a sheep. Welcome to eternal life. It has that sort of feel about it, right? But the confounding beauty of parables is that they are by their very nature multivalent, which is to say that they are rife with mystery and possibility and movement and flexibility. And as soon as you think you've got it all figured out, a fresh look from a new angle with a different glimmer of light will enable you to see a whole unmined aspect of the story and send us back into a realm of discernment about what the parable means. Depending on where you stand in the story, the lesson to be learned or the insight to be gained shifts. So where do you stand in today's text? If we're to reflect on this more personally, I imagine that we would answer this in a couple of ways. On our best days, we might be able to say that we're sheep. Remember when I did that fill in the blank act of mercy? Remember when I served breakfast at ICM or prepared lunches at Clifton Sanctuary Ministries? Or remember when I helped the refugee families at Memorial Drive? Remember when I made that meal for a fellow church member after surgery? I I must be a sheep. But then we put on our more discerning hats, our greater sense of self-reflection. And if we're being honest, we're also goats, right? What, What about that time that I saw the homeless person on the street corner and I even looked them in the eye, but I just kept walking. Or what about when I failed to help the stranger outside of Target? Or when I skipped the church mission day because I was just maxed out? And when we start to think, oh my gosh, I might be a goat, this wave of guilt can rush over us and we step into a sense of self-judgment, this is not good, right? If the goal of this parable is to examine each of our lives as individuals, then the truth is that we're probably both. It is no mistake, in fact, that Amanda read both the sheep and the goat's lines. We could sit in either place. So where do you stand in today's text? I think the question gets more complicated still because our our American ears are trained for individualism. We are trained to hear this parable as if it's a question of what I did, as if it's a matter of my personal salvation. But here's the funny thing. Jesus wasn't actually that concerned about your personal salvation. And just like each of us are not either sheep or goat, but both and, so too this text is not primarily or solely concerned with individual salvation. The son of man in this text is speaking to the nations. He is addressing not you and me as individuals, but you and me through the systems and the structures that we are a part of. The nations is a reference often translated the Gentiles. It might mean the government, But it might more broadly mean society, the powers and principalities that have an impact on all of our access to food and water and clothing and shelter and justice and connection. So perhaps we actually need to reframe the question. It's not where do you stand in this text, but where do y'all stand in today's text? Where do we stand together? Are we collectively sheep or goats? And as soon as I pit that question as an either-or question, the complexity of the parable unfolds again and makes us realize that even our systems are not sheep or goats, but both and. If I asked you to name the systems and the organizations and the groups that you're a part of, and whether some of those groups strive toward acts of mercy my guess is that you can name ways that you participate in church, in other partner ministries, in neighborhood associations and PTAs and your employer, and even in the government itself, and that each of those in some way strives to care for those that they're connected to and the least in their communities. And at the same time, I know that we can look out and name the multitude of justice issues that reveal these big gaping holes in the fabric of our communities. One in six children in Georgia face food insecurity. One in six residents of our state live in poverty. There are millions of refugees that long to be welcomed and we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than anywhere else in the world. So are we collectively sheep or goats? The answer again seems to be both and. I'm aware that it is Martin Luther King weekend and so I have on my mind, not just broad questions of the least of these but in particular questions of racial justice. And I'm reminded of Dr. King's own wrestling as he wrote in a letter from a Birmingham jail. On the one hand, Dr. King gives thanks for, in his words, and I quote, some of our white brothers who have grasped the meaning of this social revolution, the civil rights movement, and committed themselves to it. King writes, they are still too small in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some have written about our struggle in eloquent prophetic and understanding terms. Some have uh, marched with us down nameless streets of the South, they have sat with us at lunch counters and rode in with us on freedom rides. They have languished in filthy, roach-infested jails. They have, he says, recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action antidotes to combat the disease of segregation. And yet, One of the harshest yet justified indictments that King makes in his letter from a Birmingham jail is his grave disappointment and frustration with the white moderate. He writes again in this very same letter, maybe I was too optimistic. Maybe I expected it too much. I guess I should have realized that few members of a race that has oppressed another race can understand or appreciate the deep groans and passionate yearnings of those that have been oppressed. And still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. He says, shallow, peop- shallow understanding from people of good is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is more bewildering than outright rejection. Almost 60 years later, as our nation continues to face a racial reckoning, his words, Hit right at the heart, right? They they still ring true. Whether we are to hear Dr. King's words and Jesus' parables as individuals or as a collective community, one thing is for sure there is still work to do. And the call to respond to the least of these is still at the forefront of what it looks like to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. Where do we stand in today's text? Individually and collectively, it seems that we are both sheep and goats, not either or, but both and. And so it's from this space that we begin a kind of journey together as a Matthew 25 congregation. You know, this past summer, the session, the the elders that lead Morningside gathered for a retreat. And in the course of a morning, we aimed to set some strategic priorities for us as a congregation in the coming year and years. And one of those priorities was that we join with other churches in the PCUSA to become a Matthew 25 congregation. This is an initiative of the church that begins with the same question we heard in Jesus' parable this morning, where were you when? And then to consider what it might mean for each of us as individuals and for us as a congregation to explore this call toward justice and mercy more fully. The Matthew 25 initiative invites congregations to do three things. First, to build congregational vitality. In short, to grow less concerned about ourselves and our own numbers and thriving and more concerned about the way the church can be a vital part of the community and its love and care for neighbor. Second, to dismantle structural racism through educating ourselves about race and privilege and by finding ways to be engaged in the work of racial justice in our own community. And third, to strive toward eradicating systemic poverty through mission that merges hands-on service with advocacy efforts that address the root causes of suffering. Matthew 25 is an invitation to engage in these acts of mercy, feeding and clothing and visiting and healing both as individuals and as a community for the needs right before us and the needs of our whole society. To be a Matthew 25 church is to celebrate when we can answer, yes, we served Christ by serving the least of these. But more importantly, Matthew 25 is a call to hear the voices of those who have long been silenced, who are suffering and forgotten, and yet who are our brothers and sisters, and to serve them and to serve Christ in tangible, actionable, heartfelt ways. So in the coming few weeks, we're going to be exploring in worship how each of these calls for mercy and justice from the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned and the stranger, how we might respond to those. And as we do, we'll be asking ourselves, what is God calling us to risk for the sake of the least of these, our brothers and sisters? I've got to tell you personally that it's um, it's an exciting and a daunting and an energizing opportunity to deepen what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's a big, hairy, audacious goal that does not get solved overnight. But I think that might be what this parable is about. It's about a call to action. And yet I want to step back to where we began, because the question is, What about this sense of judgment in the passage that scared us off at the beginning? Are we simply being called to action to avoid some kind of eternal fire in the end? Is there grace to be found here for each of us? And the gift of parables is that the meaning, the grace of the text is often hidden right on the surface. What if we've been asking the wrong question? What if the question isn't about where we stand at all, but about where Christ stands? It strikes me that the grace of this text is that we don't have to wonder where to go or what to do to draw near to God. Christ resides wherever the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the forgotten, the sick and imprisoned are crying out. To draw near to Christ requires only that we as individuals and a community seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with those in need. So rather than using this parable as a checklist to get into heaven to ensure some kind of eternity with God, the grace of this text is that you don't have to wait until the Son of Man comes to judge the nations to spend your life in communion with Christ. We are invited to be with Christ, to stand with Christ in the here and now today on this earth. If we want to be with God, we need not wait for some final divine sorting of the sheep and the goats. If we want to be with God, the door is open to do so today. For whenever you showed mercy to one of the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did so to me, says Christ. Friends, may we rest in that grace, even as we strive to respond. Amen.